1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to be reading a couple of verses, starting in verse 22. So it's towards the back of the Bible. It's like one of the last books, and uh, it's, uh, there's only two Peters, so if you're in second, just go to first. <laughs> yeah. There's three Johns, so yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 22. Um, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So out of these verses, uh, I really want to spend tonight, the bulk of our discussion, talking about um, really the trial, uh, the condemnation, and then ultimately the execution of Jesus that we remember both today uh, being the day that uh, the Lord's Supper took place uh, in history, and then also uh, tomorrow being the actual uh, trial and then crucifixion of Christ. And we're going to look at it uh, with these terms or this one main idea, which is this is his conviction, and it's also our conviction. It's his condemnation, and it's also our condemnation. And so when you see in these verses, verse 22, 23, and 24, is a summary that's really drawn out of 1 Peter. So I think it's important to mention right off the bat that in 1 Peter's argument, his argument is not to lay the foundation of a full-bodied theology of the atonement. He is laying the argument and foundationally laying the argument that we as believers should be able to suffer and submit to authority because Christ is our example as one having suffered and having submitted previously. But lest, he, lest our analysis of the crucifixion be just that God is our example and, and no more, just that Jesus is the forerunner for us and no more, Peter clarifies and goes deeper and rounds out that theological understanding by saying not only... Uh, did he commit no sin, neither was he found in his mouth, but also verse really 24 is the one that then flushes out that substitutionary angle of the atonement as well, which is that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so it's a summary statement in a larger argument from First Peter, but for our purposes tonight, we're just looking at this summary statement and kind of going back and forth to the theological idea that's at play. So this is his condemnation, this is Jesus' condemnation that Peter is talking about, but it's not his condemnation alone. It's also the just condemnation for us as well that's being discussed here. You notice verse 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so there, uh, one of the commentators, when uh, looking at the, the trial and the execution of Jesus, um, he says that when you're trying to understand the ultimate reasons for why Christ died, there's a lot of things you could look at on the ground. You could say that J Jesus died because, for example, Judas betrayed him. Or you could say that Jesus died because the Pharisees were a wicked class and they put up false witnesses. Or you could say that Jesus died because Pilate was a coward and he did not want to stand up against the people. Or you could say that Jesus died because the Jewish people wanted to hand him over to be killed. Or you could say that he died because his disciples all abandoned him and did not fight for him. Or, or a myriad of other kinds of reasons that you could come up with on the ground at a human level. Why did Jesus die? Why was he executed? But if you're looking at the ultimate reasons for why Christ died, if you're looking beyond just the, let's say, one piece of evidence after piece of evidence for what the narrative tells us, if you're looking for the broader brushstrokes of what's happening, 
the, all the gospel authors tell us not only that he was killed, but they also give specific reasons or causes for his, uh, for his accusation on the front end. So if we're looking for why he died, we have to look for why, what he was convicted of before he died. So if you're looking at the conviction, the trial, uh, there's really one place to go that really flushes out in full, which is Luke 22 and 23. So let's go there. And this same account is corroborated in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the only things that all four of the Gospels consistently discuss is the crucifixion, the trial and then the crucifixion, and then the resurrection of Christ. So if it's in all four Gospels, it's pretty important to know. And in Luke's Gospel, he gives us quite a bit of detail on it. But the first thing you'll notice is uh, just looking for what he is accused of. I want to start at the very end of chapter 22, just verse 70 and 71. So it's right there at the end of chapter 22. And this is Jesus before the high council. He's already been betrayed. And the high council, which is the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they say, Are you the Son of God then? And he, which is Jesus, said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And this in Luke's gospel is obviously part of a broader building argument that the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get along with Jesus, not because he does miracles, but because he does miracles and claims to be the son of God. And so when they accuse him here under trial, they say, are you the son of God? They ask him point blank. And everyone in the room knows that he's already made those claims. And so here he doesn't remake those claims. He simply confirms, you say that I am. Essentially, he's not denying the accusation. And this is the same thing uh, that happens, and even Peter reflects on it there. When he uh, was the one who committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So he doesn't defend himself during this trial. And then that's, that's one of the accusations. So we could say he was charged with blasphemy. That's one of the reasons he goes to the cross. But blasphemy is not a crime that you can be crucified for under the Roman civil authorities. So when they take him to Caesar, or when they take him to Pilate, who's acting really as the arm of Caesar in, in that region, you'll notice they levy a second charge against him. And in verse 3 of chapter 23, you'll see that charge. Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So the second crime that Christ is charged with, the, the crime that he's charged with before Pilate, is not blasphemy, because Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. He's charged with treason, claiming himself to be king. And if he is claiming to be king, it is Pilate's job, acting as the arm of Caesar, who they would consider to be king, to, to deal with the insurrection, because he's committing high treason. And that is a crime worthy of crucifixion. If you commit treason, you go to the cross. And so this is the crime that really the rest of the trial unfolds with. And you'll notice even when he's hanging uh, on the cross, and this is in verse uh, 36 of chapter 23, the soldiers who are there crucifying him also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And in all Gospels, that same testimony is corroborated that when he goes to trial before the Sadducees, they accuse him of blasphemy. And when he goes to trial against Pilate and the Roman authorities, they accuse him of treason. 
And so when we're looking for ultimate causes of why Jesus was convicted, what was he convicted of, we have to say that it's blasphemy and then it's treason. Blasphemy before the Jewish high council and treason against the Roman civil magistrate. And that fleshes out for us more specifically what Peter is talking about when he says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the front end of this uh, study, I mentioned that it's not only his conviction, it's not only his condemnation, it's our conviction, it's our condemnation. And when we talk about sins in a broad general sense, we can say we have sins that Jesus died for. Sometimes we look back at things from too distant of a lens to really understand what's going on. When I was in a biology class in high school, one of the best days was after we had spent almost a semester learning about cells and different things, we actually got to pull out microscopes and put the slides under the microscopes and look at the things ourselves and see the intricacy and see the beauty and see the detail that had already been described. It was already head knowledge, but when we saw it, it became a little bit more real. And for me, that was exciting enough to actually pursue uh, more studies and more uh, into more uh, depth and more learning about those processes. But when we, when we talk about sin, I think we can sometimes think about it just at like the, the thought level and never take like a close look as to what's happening. When we look at the atonement, the crucifixion, we can do that same kind of thing. And so when we say statements like, he died for our sins, we might be looking at that from too far back of a lens. And I want to encourage you to lean into this and say, what is he convicted of? What was I guilty of? And when you ask those questions, you can say that he's convicted of blasphemy and of treason. And those are consequently also the same sins specifically that you and I are guilty of on a root level that really leads to all other sins that we commit. When we commit sins like uh, uh, fornication or adultery or pride or envy or greed, all of those sins are downstream of the sins of treason and blasphemy. When we put ourselves in the place of the one true king, God, and we say that we are king, we want to call the shots, we want to make decrees about how to live our lives and how the world ought to work, that's the crime of treason, putting ourselves in the place of the one who actually has that authority. And when we commit blasphemy, we disregard the name of God, don't give it worship worthy of what it is worth. And so we are actually guilty specifically of the two crimes that Jesus is convicted of and crucified for, blasphemy and treason. So it's not just that he dies for all of our sins in a general sense, he, he dies for the two root sins, he's convicted of and killed for the two root sins that are the same sins that you and I struggle with specifically which is when we sin, we have committed treason and blasphemy against God, who's sovereign and mighty and rules and reigns over all the earth. So when we say specifically that he bore our sins, we're talking, yes, about all the sins that those particular root sins might manifest themselves in, our arrogance and our frustration and our bitterness towards other people. Those are sins that are, that are manifestations of these root sins. But the root sins themselves are treason and blasphemy against God. Same thing that Jesus is convicted of here. And so then when, Paul, or when Peter here is expanding and saying uh, that Jesus died as our substitute in our place, he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And there's so much theologically going on there. But I think one of the first things to note is not a, we've talked about what it means when he bore our sins, the, the, those are the sins that we are guilty of. But also it says emphatically, he himself bore our sins. 
It doesn't say he bore our sins, leaving it at some kind of an impersonal level. Peter wants us to get that Jesus himself dealt with sin, which is important because in the old Levitical system, the priests dealt with sin, but the priests themselves didn't deal with sin. The priests dealt with sin by means of the goat or by means of the bull or by means of the lamb. The priests themselves did not deal with sin. He himself bore our sins. It's not that he deals with our sin at a distant level. He deals with our sin at a personal level. And so when he himself bears our sins, it is he who is the substitute. He who is the one who stands in our place. And also, I think more than that, when we look at he himself dealing with our sins, you'll notice that all of that is past tense. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, meaning it's done in the past. It's not that he started dealing with our sins and we complete the dealing of our sins by our works or our faithful obedience to him or our cooperation to him. We don't increase the thing that he started by him justifying us by dying in our place. He himself did it. It's not he and our faithfulness. It's not he and our obedience. It's not even he and good works done through him by us. It's he himself who dealt with it in his body on the tree. And then we look to the latter parts of that statement. He deals with it bodily, meaning in his flesh, meaning the incarnation is important doctrine for us to believe. And more than that, it says that he does so on a tree. And that brings out more than just that he died on a cross, which certainly is being said. But in both the Old Covenant and Paul regurgitates it in the New Covenant, Galatians 3.13, that to die on a tree is, is a cursed way to die. It was said in the Old Covenant by Moses, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He's bringing out the idea that when Jesus dies in his body, he's dying as a curse on our behalf for the sins of which we are guilty. And then the final really piece of that statement is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So when Jesus does all these things, he doesn't do them for, no vague, for any vague reason. He doesn't do it to show us primarily that he loves us, although he does do it to show us that he loves us. He does it primarily to actually deal with the sin problem so that we too might die to our sin and live to righteousness. And in all these statements, you'll notice the pronoun use, our, the relative pronoun. And you'll also notice that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the same group that's being referred to, right? And so whoever he dies for, whoever Sin, whatever sins he deals with is the same group of people that turns around and puts off their sin and clothes themselves in righteousness. It is not that a group of people close themselves in righteousness and then Jesus decides, I'm dying for those people. When he dies for people, their nature and character is fundamentally changed where they now live out in righteousness. When he dies for people, when he deals with their sin, their sin is dead as an objective fact. And then some, sometime downstream in their life, they have a subjective experience of conversion. But the objective dealing with sin has already happened. It happened 2,000 years ago. And so sin has both a, uh, the justification that we experience through Christ's work has both an objective reality, meaning it definitely happened at a specific place in time in the first century. But it also has a subjective reality, which is when you and I experience the effects of that purchase. We experience the newness of that purchase. We experience the redemption as it, is, as it were. But it is not as though those sins have been hanging in suspension. And then when we confess with faith that somehow then it gets back credited to the account. There's no back billing with God. 
He dealt with the sins fully and finally on the cross. He bore them, past tense, in his body on the tree. It's a temporal reality. And he doesn't go on bearing them. He dealt with them, as he said, when he says, it is finished on the cross. And the, the final piece of this sentence, in the final piece of uh, verse 24, is he says these words, by his wounds, you have been healed. Referring once again to that same group. So the same group that has their sins dealt with by Christ is the same group that dies to sin and lives to righteousness, that puts off the old and clothes themselves in the new. And it's also the same group which experiences the the fundamental healing. Now, in this quote is a paraphrased reference out of Isaiah 53, where the reference is that by his stripes we are healed. And here the, the paraphrase then translated into English is by his wounds we are healed. And you can rightly say that it is not just that he was vaguely dealing with the problem of sin through the general means of the crucifixion. Every, every blow that he received, every lashing that he received, every, every ounce of weight of pain that he received was actively working to heal us of the sins which we were guilty of. It's not just that his wound of the crucifixion in general, it's every single wound that he received was doing something on the other end of the reality. He's moving the needle for us. It's he himself who does all of this work. And the cross is really the central work that Jesus Christ comes to do. He comes to live the perfect life. He comes to be our model. He comes to show us how we ought to live in obedience to Christ. But all of that is not possible if he doesn't actually free us from sin to allow us to live in that freedom. If he doesn't deal with sin, we're still dead in our sin. We might have good examples, but we're still chained up. We might have a good idea of what to do, but so did the Israelites when they had the law. Jesus doesn't come as another example or another law. He comes fundamentally to free us from our bondage to sin, our, our sinful nature, and make us alive with Christ. This is the new covenant, which Ezekiel describes as, being, as having a new spirit poured into your heart so that you now might obey, not from the outer workings, but from the internal disposition of the heart you might obey, which also manifests itself consequently in the outer workings of the heart. And so as we, as we reflect on these happenings and these events, I think it's, it's significant to point out that when Christ comes, uh, his, his death has a significant ripple effect. But I don't want us to get lost in the ripple effect of the death. When he dies, he dies to show us that God loves us. When he dies, he dies to show us that this is how we love one another. We also would lay down our life for a friend. He, the death of Christ has all these you know, good ripple effects that it has. But the ripple should not distract us from the, the core event that is happening. Even here, Peter tells us that while it is good for us to remember that he's our example, that he, he bore shame, that he suffered quietly, and that we as Christians should be able to bear scorn and shame as a result, he's also careful to say that that's not the central reason why he bore scorn and shame. He didn't do it to show us what to do, although consequently that did happen. He did it primarily because it had to be done. Sin had to be dealt with, and Christ was the one who had to do it. Only God could deal with the sin because only God could sustain that and then get up and rise again. But only a man could die in the place of man. So Jesus was the one, he himself was the one who dealt with the problem of sin. And I think that in just these few short verses, there's so so much good, tight theology about the crucifixion. And I think seeing it clearly at that level helps us when we say statements like, he bore our sin, or he died in our stead. That we're not thinking broadly about sin in general. 
we might not even be thinking about our sin specifically. We're thinking about the cosmic treason that we've committed, the, the cosmic crimes that we have against God, and then also the, the cosmic blasphemy that we've committed by saying that he is not God, that he is not creator, that we are better creators than he is, or that we are more worthy of glory, more, more fit to receive praise and worship and honor. And when we see those are the two crimes we're guilty of, and we see that those are the two crimes Christ is convicted of, it t- I think it takes all of that and pulls it right down onto uh, the live nerve of what we, what we need to see. And it, it puts it into focus. And yes, there's good learning that happens before that. And there's more learning to be done after understanding this as well. But all of this, I think, is important to see uh, with full clarity what's happening at the cross. Because the cross is really the center point of, of our theology. The cross is the thing that makes everything else move in Christianity. And without the cross, there is no faith. And without Jesus having done this, there is no freedom. Let's pray and then we can uh, move into some discussion. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace to um, record these words, record these events, and then give us wonderful commentary from your apostles on what happened and why it took place. Lord, would you give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, that we would be sensitive to your gospel, that we would be uh, not just hearers of the word, but doers also, and that we would uh, embody these truths and and live them out in our lives and not uh, simply understand them cognitively, but we would would love them from the heart. Lord, would you give us grace to do that? We pray this in your name. Amen.